You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Um, I think it'd be good to open in prayer before we dive into the scriptures for this week. Uh, so if you bow your heads with me, I want to I open this up in a word of prayer. Father, um, Lord, we just come before you today, grateful to you, um, thankful for your work in and through uh, our lives, our church family, thankful for the years that we have watched you um, do a powerful work of drawing people to yourself and turning us into radical worshipers of you. We're just mindful this morning, God, that you, uh, you're so good to us that you did not uh, leave us in the pit. We stand alongside the psalmist who says, you did not leave me in the pit to go down to hell, but you drew me out of that and you saved me. And that I know for many of us in this room is the... Uh, it's the testimony of our lives that you didn't leave us in darkness, that you drew us out of the darkness and into the light, that you might shine the light of your gospel on us and that you might draw us to the cross of Christ and save us. And you, you are so good in that work of salvation and we're so grateful to you. I know that there may be some among us today who have not yet experienced that, maybe still skeptical, wondering if you're still just a fairy tale, or if you really exist, or if the Bible is the real deal. And uh, Lord, we just say that we trust you in that work um, of salvation in people's lives, and we just ask, and we beg you to do it. We ask God that you would do that work in people's lives and in hearts today. Through the preaching of your word. We know, God, that, that left to ourselves, if we were to stand here and just try to read this book on our own, it would, it would make some sense, but it might just seem like mere stupidity almost, that, that your words would have no impact on us. But we know, God, that your word is living and active and alive and that the power of your spirit is present to open hearts and save and redeem and transform. So we just beg you, God, to shine the light of your grace and your mercy and your love and the message of the gospel clearly as I preach. So Lord, uh, we ask that you would do that work. We trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So hey guys, our, our mission and, and, and our vision here at the church um, is to be a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. That's our big, broad mission statement. I tried to help us out this week, because over the last couple of weeks, as I get to this point where I say there's three words, right? Three words. Everybody there? Ready? Three words. One is? Yeah, it's just, it's just timing. That's really all it is at this point, right? So, so you guys got it. You got it. You're good. It's just, it's just timing. So that first word is gospel. Okay, I know I'm just, I'm not leading well, am I? <laughs> so that first word is? Gospel. Hey, there it is. Nice job. Second word is? Family. And the third word? Mission. Gospel family mission. Those three words describe who we are. Those are the, those are the three words that we would say we want to focus on. They're our, our values. It's, it's, it's what kind of makes up who we are. When you meet us as a church family, you hear these three words. And you don't just hear those three words like lip service. You, I, I pray that you see it in action throughout our church family. And that's really one of the big reasons for this sermon series that we are in. Because uh, for us, our mission and our vision is rooted uh, and really inspired by what we've seen God doing uh, in and through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ministry of Jesus as he walked this earth. As we examine that story all throughout the Gospels, we're inspired by that. And it, it motivates us and drives us. And so uh, who we say we want to be and who we therefore intend to be is rooted there in the scriptures in that picture. But also in the picture of the Holy Spirit doing his work in and through the early church uh, throughout the book of Acts. And so, uh, so our plan over the summer was to do 
six-week sermon series called The People of the Well. This is week three of that sermon series, and then we'll take that break over the summer for those other guys to come in and preach, and then when we come back in August, we'll resume this series and preach the second half or the next three weeks of this series. And the, this, this first uh, three weeks have been based on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and then when we come back to that third, that, 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 that second half, the last three weeks in August, we're going to focus on John chapter 4 as we look at uh, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Uh, and so a little bit of backstory just to remind us of where we've been and kind of who we are. And for those of you that may be new with us this morning, um, we, we started this church. We started planting the well in August of 2012 uh, in our living room. Uh, my wife, Christy, and I and our, our kids uh, started the well with, uh, I think it was like two other adults and, uh, was it two other adults? Four other adults. I'm sorry. I'm just doing the math in my head as I remember. It was four other adults and three other kids. And what we did was we just began by meeting in our home, uh, as well as local parks and local pubs and coffee shops and different places like that. And our purpose during that time was to study God's Word together. Uh, was to share life together and encourage one another and worship together and to really discover what God was speaking to us in and through His Word by the power of His Spirit. Uh, and uh, by God's grace, those early meetings um, in our living room basically became like the launching point for our church. Uh, and uh, it really became the launching point for the mission and the vision of the well um, over the next few years. And one of the most difficult pieces for us I think, uh, as a church family, uh, has been what we're going to talk about today. When we talk about our mission and vision for who we want to be at the well, uh, the final piece of what we talk about is we, we talk about um, wanting to grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. Um, this has been, I think, one of the hardest pieces to flesh out as a church family um, and to see that multiply over the years. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look again at Acts 2, 42-47. We're going to focus uh, specifically and mainly on verse 47. <coughs> and what we're going to do is, as we look at that final verse of this passage, we're going to ask, like, what does it look like? <coughs> what does it look like um, when people actually grow as missionally engaged disciples who glorify God? Like, what is this look like for us uh, so that we might have a place to root uh, what we say and who we want to become. And so take a look at Acts 2.42 through uh, 47 real quick. Let me read it. Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. <clears throat> and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So what's happening in this passage? First question we should ask whenever we arrive at the passage. It's not necessarily how do I feel about it? Or what do I think about it? Or what did somebody say about it? The first question we've got to ask is like, what's happening in this passage? And over the last few weeks, as we've studied this thing out, we've learned that the people of the early church, by God's grace and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them, uh, these people in the early church, they were a devoted people. They were an awestruck people. They were united. They were generous. They were a family of gospel communities, really, uh, who gathered consistently in large group gatherings and in small group gatherings while praising God gladly. Uh, they were glad to praise God together, glad to be together. And that seeped out of them as you uh, encountered them. 
They were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to fellowship, to celebrating the Lord's Supper, to sharing meals together, and to prayer. This is, this is what they were wholeheartedly committed and devoted to. Uh, begs the question for us, what do we have ourselves devoted to? Personally, individually, each of us? If people were to examine your life, what would they say you are the most devoted to? For these people in the early church, their hearts and their minds were fixated on the awesomeness of God. And they fought for unity, right? Like unity was a pretty big deal to them, and so they fought for that, and it became, uh, um, it became a descriptor of who they were, that this was a united group of people who were headed in the same direction. You could see that unity making its way out in their lives through their generosity towards one another, and their love of God and love for one another, and their love for people in their community. This was obvious to all who saw them. They gathered consistently with one another for the purpose of praising God gladly. This was another way that you could see the, the Holy Spirit at work in their lives as they gladly gave themselves away to the Lord and to other people. This is the kind of people the Holy Spirit develops within a church family. And I think the question for us all along is like, is do we see this evidence of the Holy Spirit at work here? <clears throat> when people examine our lives as uh, individuals of a church family, is this what people would say about us? To this passage, as we study it, if you think about it contextually, meaning this passage finds its place uh, in, uh, in the center of a bunch of other scriptures, right? And so as you step back from just examining that passage in its root form, and you step back and you look at all the context around it, then what you find is you find this text centered at the very beginning of a book called the Book of Acts. It's called the Book of Acts because all throughout the Book of Acts, the author Luke, uh, what he's describing is the acts of the Holy Spirit. So think about this. The acts of the Holy Spirit. The, the activity of the Holy Spirit at work through the apostles and the early church. That's the big theme of the book of Acts. And so as you study it, you keep that in mind. And you say, okay, so what I'm seeing here when I see this person do this thing, or when I see that group of people do these things, what Luke is wanting to drive home to us is, I mean, it's not about these people. It's really about God and His powerful work in a group of people. And so what you're seeing when we see these descriptors is you're actually seeing the Holy Spirit making God famous. It's the Holy Spirit drawing attention to himself and making himself famous. What Luke does, the author, <coughs> as he describes the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the early church, um, is he, he, he's describing this text, this passage we're in today, um, he, he's describing basically the activity that happened immediately following the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a pretty big day, right? The day of Pentecost was a day when the Holy Spirit basically drops out of heaven, fills all the believers that are hanging out in an upper room praying because Jesus had just ascended back into heaven and he had said, hey, go wait in Jerusalem <clears throat> until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you and comes upon you and then you'll be one of my witnesses. This is a very missional text when we read it. Um, this had just happened. That's the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit drops tons of fire on disciples' heads, speaking in other languages, which later were basically interpreted into the languages of people that were gathered there. Um, th th this was just a, like a massive revival that took place. And what Luke tells us is from one message from a guy named Peter who had denied Christ three times, <coughs> roughly 50 days earlier, 3,000 people get saved. Right? That's a lot of people that just in one moment get added to the church. Can you imagine what that had been like? Can you think about what this day would be like? 
uh, for those early disciples and for this early church. Can you imagine what it would have been like to experience a church of 120 people? That's how many disciples there were. A church of 120 people at that time gathering in this room, praising God, praying, asking the Spirit to come and do miraculous things among them. Got 12 core leaders, the apostles who um, kept getting it wrong all the time. So they didn't have like the greatest leaders on the face of the planet, you know. In fact, none of these guys uh, had degrees. They got booted out of rabbi school because they failed. Um, so they were working odd jobs, basically. These guys were, these guys were, were, were middle-class folks, um, like the rest of us here, right? Um, these guys were not star athletes. Uh, they weren't the greatest leaders, so to speak. I mean, you, you read all throughout the Gospels, and you just see these guys biff it day in and day out would not have been the core team that any of us would have chosen. Okay? If you're recruiting guys to get on a football team, uh, you want to recruit guys with talent, these guys were not those guys. Um, and that, that's why this is so miraculous. That's why this points to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in common, ignorant people like us. That's why this passage is so encouraging, because... These guys were so messed up, and yet on that day, the Holy Spirit drops like a bomb. Peter gets off his butt and preaches a powerful message under the power of the Holy Spirit. People are like, man, I saw that guy a few days ago, and I saw what his life was like. Like he was cussing and swearing that he didn't like Jesus and didn't even know him, and today he's calling for repentance in Christ. This is radical. Like something's happened. Something's changed this dude's life. I want me some of that. And, and the Holy Spirit did his work of, of saving. So what would you do? What would you and I do if that happened to us today? Like a massive group of people just suddenly begins following Jesus. How, how would you baptize all 3,000 people? Just think about that in context of um, early Jerusalem and this small town. Like, we'd probably just go to a public pool, I guess. I don't know. Just start lining people up like cows and just get them in and out of the water. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just crazy. You got 12 leaders that are going to do that baptize. 3,000 baby believers. 3,000 people who know nothing about what it means to follow Jesus, but come into that with all their preconceived notions and ideas of what it looks like and now need the Word of God and community to transform the way they live. How would you provide leadership for them? How would you teach and train and equip and empower and discipline? How would you organize these guys? How would you organize this family of believers so that you could continue to grow Mature disciples who love Jesus. I think the simple answer that floats up out of this text, that floats right up out of the theme of this passage, is just that truth that the only way that you and I could do it would be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And at the end of the day, there, there, are, there are some of us at times who want to make like a really great big deal of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is that even the gifts of the Holy Spirit that He gives to each of you and I, as we are both uh, all endowed with certain giftings, right? <clears throat> Some gets come together and have a word of prophecy. Some of us, when we come together, have a, a song of praise. Some of us, when we come together, have a prayer. Um, some of us are given the gift of administration. Some are given the gift of tongues, or some are given the gift of interpreting those tongues. A lot of times what we want to do is we want to make those gifts more important than the giver himself. Because the book of Acts was never designed and never written for the express purpose or intent to make the gifts of God important. It was to make the giver himself the most important in our lives. So as we study this, like, what does it look like for us to be people who love the giver of all good things to the extent that he continues to grow within us the ability to be a missionally engaged group of disciples who are growing more missionally engaged disciples who then live their lives to glorify God? If you look again at verse 47, Luke says this, just a reminder, he says that the people of the early church were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Man, if you, 
If you spend a lot of time in this text, it can be pretty haunting, really. Really haunting. Uh, you can really begin to wonder, man, like, what does it look like to um, be a missionally engaged group of people where God is actually adding new believers to the church family day by day? That's just every day. That's a, that's a powerful descriptor to go to bed with and go to sleep on every night. As we look at the early church, what we see is we, I think we see the early church under this descriptor. It was a, it was a spirit-empowered church family that grew missionally engaged disciples who glorified God. And their, their constant public praise of God and the peace that they experienced with people in the public sector, I think that that was like fertilizer and water to the soil of their growing gospel community. That's what I think. God's power for salvation in this church, in this early church, and these people, it was obvious throughout their community. People could see it. It was evident. It was evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in this church family. And it was obvious throughout their entire community because God was actively saving people. This was the mark in, in, in that community, was that God was actively saving people and adding them to the church family. The people of the early church, man, they, like I said, they, they praised God publicly. This is what marked them. This is what defined them. They lived at peace. They lived um, in, in favor with people in um, that community. They experienced the radical power of salvation daily. Let's break this down a little bit. Number one, people of the other church, they praised God publicly. This was a defining characteristic of the people of the early church. Like, they weren't defined by the rules of a social club. They, they were defined by their public praise of God. Their badge of honor. Okay, Think about it like badges. We all love to wear badges of honor, right? I used to be in Taekwondo when I was younger. Some of my badges of honor were my trophies or my medals or my different ranking belts, right? Those are badges of honor for me in Taekwondo. The badge of honor in the early church wasn't the size of their buildings, <laughs> wasn't the number of their ministry programs, wasn't the quality of their music teams or the likableness of their preachers or the subculture of people that they came from that made that subculture of people feel so comfortable when they walked in the door. These weren't their badges of honor. Their, their badge of honor was the way that they praised God publicly. These people in the early church, they, they, they weren't known for their political alignment or their fight against all things unholy in their uh, public square. They were known for their public praise of God. Let me just ask you now. In your public relationships with people, what are you known for? Are you known for your public praise of God? Or is this the only place where you praise God? Are you known for your public praise of God? What kinds of things in your life might um, be barriers for being known as a person who publicly praises Him? Is it your frustration with life? Is it your frustration with not having things that maybe you wanted? Your preoccupation with chasing certain pursuits. What, what are you known for? Are you known for your public praise of God or are you known for publicly praising yourself? Okay, that's hard to hear, isn't it? That's hard to hear. What are you, what are you publicly known for? This portion of text for us is part of the reason why we believe that the people of the well will become a gospel-centered church 
family of gospel communities who grow missionally engaged disciples. We believe that that will happen as the Spirit empowers us to praise God publicly. That when that becomes a defining characteristic of who we are as a church family, that our, our church will actually begin to develop and grow more disciples who are missionally engaged because the public praise of God rather than the public praise of self is so attractive. The entire world is great at praising self. Well, number two, uh, the people of the early church lived peacefully with other people. This, this is an interesting thing that we see uh, in, in these verses. This was another uh, defining characteristic of the people uh, in the early church. Uh, they, they weren't defined, listen, they, they weren't defined by their combative stance against everything they disagreed with or everyone they disagreed with or everybody they were in conflict with. Now, that wasn't what they were known for. They were actually known because they lived peaceably and peacefully or favorably with other people. They, they weren't out picking theological fights with everyone on every social media street corner. <laughs> Y'all know me well enough, so that sentence is for me and for anybody else that it catches. <laughs> they weren't huddled up. They weren't huddled up in their own personal little bunkers of protection and isolation. A lot of churches, they're really good today about building bunkers. And Eric and I can forward along to you a, a good four-hour sermon from a dude from New York. Not from me. This guy's from New York, planted a church there, and he talked a lot about bunkers and what it looks like for a church to build bunkers. And he tied that all the way back to our own individual personal lives of what it looks like for us to build bunkers of protection in the midst of the life war that we walk in. And how unbiblical and actually sinful that is and how we need to walk in repentance from that so that we can walk as a spirit-empowered body of people. So these people, man, in this early church, they weren't huddled up in their own personal little bunkers of tradition. Tradition's a big one. Or seclusion and protection. Gotta protect all of this against those bad people out there. Ah, right? You, still, you don't see that uh, in the early church. You see it a lot today. Um, and, and again, that, that begins deep down inside of the hearts of us as individuals and then seeps out into the body. They weren't rioting or demonstrating their disdain for their government and the city streets. They weren't doing that. Not saying that there's never a reason for that. Just saying it's not what these guys were doing. And if anybody had a reason to do it, I think they had a reason to do it. Because the government that these early believers sat under was horrifying. We could go into details for a long time. Um, encourage you to chase that one down on your own time. We weren't out doing that. These people actually uh, lived in, in favorable and peaceful relationships with everyone in their community. This is the way they live, because that's, that's what Luke tells us, right? Praising God and having favor with all the people. I find every word of God's word to be important for us. And when Luke writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then it is as though God is speaking to us through the word, and saying, this is what described and this is what defined these people in the early church. They had favor with all the people. Not just people that looked great. Not just people that treated them well. Not just people that they got along with really well. All the people. Not just people in their church, but also people outside of their church family. All the people, right? I could stand and spend all day on the word all and you guys would be sleeping, right? I know. I just, man, it's just, I get into those words and I, I think, what would it be like for us to live peacefully with all people? Yeah, let me tell you this. Here's what it would look like just for me. And then let's think about what it would look like for you guys. Like what it would look like for me is a lot less counseling appointments. If we all live peacefully with our brothers and sisters in Christ, like if we begin to say, hey, 
Hey, he's been bought by the blood of Christ. He's important. Or she is, has been bought by the blood of Christ. So she is valuable. We will begin to put each other first. Marriages, friendships, relationships would take on a whole different look. And you know what that would look like? Something radically different than the culture we live in. And you know what that would mean? That would mean that the Holy Spirit was at work in us. Wouldn't it? So, so for me, it would just mean that. But you know what it would mean for you? Probably the same thing, right? <laughs> Peacefully. Living peacefully with all people. You know what this means for me as a dad at home on Father's Day? <laughs> this means that when I go home, worn out from preaching a sermon, right? Worn out from helping with a block party. This means that when I walk in my home today and there's some things that are a little bit of mess, um, this means I might begin to say, hey, good characteristic for me as a daddy in my home is to live peacefully with all my kids rather than to pick fights with them over what's going on in our home. Okay? So it goes for me. Um, it goes for me too. So... Now, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to press that point because it's important. But I also want to say this: that we need to acknowledge this. Uh, we need to acknowledge that these people in this text they did have enemies. Okay, if you read all throughout the Book of Acts, you'll see that they did have enemies. And here's here's just one little piece of evidence: all the disciples, all the apostles, uh, died horribly because there were people that were their enemies. Some of them got crucified, got their heads chopped off, right? Because of their stand and their preaching of the gospel. So they did have enemies. Um, but here's what the early church didn't do. Here's what these people did not do. Um, they didn't have enemies because they were antagonistic. And I think that's really key for us in the church um, and as believers. They didn't have enemies because they, they, they weren't an antagonistic group of like uh, right-wing uh, religious fanatics, okay? Um, I'm not saying that to be conservative or right-wing makes you a fanatic, but that use of words um, in our culture connects, right? That's, that's not who these people were known as. They weren't known that way. Uh, the reason that they had enemies uh, all throughout the book of Acts is because they proclaimed their faith in Christ. Because that's what they led with. Like, when you got to know these people, what you knew about them was that these people loved Jesus. Like, they led with that. They proclaimed that. I love Jesus. And it's not just lip service. You can see it in my life. Like, that's what you see. In it. And, and they didn't do this on their own. They, they could have never done it on their own. You and I can't do this on our own. This was happening because the power of the Holy Spirit was at work in each of them. That's what they led with. I love Jesus. They proclaimed that. They praised God publicly. This is what they led with. And they called people to repentance and faith personally. It wasn't that they didn't call people to repentance and faith. It's just that they weren't like the blowhorn guy that you see on, on YouTube over at some college campus being like, Hey, repent or you're going to hell, you sinners. I mean, it, was, it wasn't that. I mean, there was relationship and there was personal calls to that. And you could see it at work in their lives. You knew these guys, these guys were radical. Like you, you saw it happening. And so it would be compelling. It wasn't kind of just the cold door-to-door -door evangelism, hand out a track and being like, hey, yo, come follow Jesus. I dropped my track and let me go. You know? I'm, not, I'm not warned against tracks. Don't hear me wrong. I just think that we ought to be walking tracks. I think people should be able to read us like a track and say, man, that guy loves Jesus. Uh, I want to follow Jesus because I see the Holy Spirit at work in that guy's life or that girl's life. I still hand him some written literature because you know me, I like to read. So I'll still hand out written literature all day long. You guys probably get five emails from me every week. So you know I'm not against written literature. But how many of you can actually read them? Don't, forget it. Don't, I'm, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Yeah, get off that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> now the people of the early church, man, they lived in peace with all people, and I think I think they did that because of their 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 radical commitment to living out the gospel 
in the context of personal holiness, public praise, and community welfare. Like, they weren't afraid to call people to repentance by their public preaching. And again, it was backed up by an obvious love for God and for other people as well. And this is why we say and we believe that the people of the well will become a family of missionally engaged disciples who grow other disciples as we live peacefully with other people in our community. What's the barrier for you in this? What's the barrier for you living at peace and at favor with other people? Number three, the people of the early church experienced God's saving power. People of the church experience God's saving power. And this, this, in my opinion, man, this is the, uh, I think is the crowning characteristic of God's grace at work among the people of God who give themselves wholeheartedly to God and to others as missionally engaged disciples. Like God's mission, think about this for a minute, God's mission, when we say we want us to be missionally engaged, it simply means that we want our people to be engaged in the mission of God. And God's mission all throughout the scriptures is to bring glory to himself and attention to himself, right? He does that by ransoming and redeeming and saving people for his own possession. Every one of us in this room, if if you're a Christ follower, if you claim Jesus, if you follow him, um, and then every one of us that follows Jesus, uh, we, we are both a recipient of God's grace on one hand. We have received God's saving grace. We are recipients of God's mission. Okay? God's mission has given us some benefits. Because as God sent Jesus, then as he sent the Spirit, and then as he sent others to preach that message to us, we are recipients of God's mission to save us. But we are also, on the other hand, stewards and co-laborers of that mission. Like, as soon as you hear the gospel message and you begin following Jesus and you get saved and become part of the church, as soon as that happens, you are not, you don't get saved to go sit in your own little cocoon and follow Jesus all by yourself. You get, you get saved into a community. Prove it in the text. It's good, isn't it? Prove it in the text, though, right? That's what everybody should be saying to me. Joe, prove it in the text. Because I know a lot of you guys, you hear me rant and rave about this all the time. Like, you can't follow Jesus all by yourself. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. Really? Show me in the Bible. Because by God's Bible, that, that, that's authoritative. Like, the pastor, only authoritative to a certain extent, right? But God's Word, authoritative. So let's look at it. Go back to verse 47. The Lord added to their number. Let me just ask you this. When it says, when it says the Lord added to their number, who's the there? Well, it's not the closet where somebody gets to walk all by themselves now, is it? There's a there, meaning there's people. Okay? Okay? And he doesn't just stop there either. This is day by day. Okay? We've covered that. Those who are being saved. So the people that were added to the there number, which grew the number of the church, they were actually saved. Uh, these weren't nominal Christians. These weren't pretend Christians. These weren't, these weren't just people that were like, hey, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. Um, the, these were people that were actually saved and became part of the family of the church. This is, the, this is the reason that I say that every one of us who follows Christ is both a recipient and the benefits of God's mission, as well as a steward or co-laborer in God's mission. We not only receive the benefits, but we also are co-laborers in that. As soon as you and I get saved to become part of the family of the church, we don't just stay in this consuming benefits, give to me, serve me, I need, right? We don't just stay there. That's part of who we are because we are needy people, right? But that's not it. That's only half the picture. The other half the picture is that we are then called to live out that same mission in other people's lives. So it's both a consuming, receiving benefits, as well as a investing and contributing and giving oneself away wholeheartedly for the sake of others and the gospel. Now, this is the reason that passages like Matthew 28, 18 through uh, 20, uh, Mark 16, 15 through 18, Luke 19, 9 and 10, Luke 24, 46 through 49, 
Acts 1.8. That's why those passages that explicitly command our continued engagement in God's mission are so vital to the health of a missionally engaged church. These passages are so vital to the health of missionally engaged disciples. So you apply those passages corporately as a group of people, but you also need to apply these passages individually as somebody who is a part of that group. I encourage you guys to go and look at those passages and apply them to yourself and see where you're at on that whole consumeristic and contributor scale. There should be a balance there, and this is a work of the Spirit. Just ask Him to help you get to a place to where you are both a contributor and a consumer. The people of the early church, um, as we've read in this text, man, they experienced numerical growth on a scale that I think would be staggering for us today. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't that these people in the, or in the early church like sat at a revival meeting and then just walked forward and filled out a card. I, I, I trusted Jesus today um, and prayed with somebody uh, and then the, the following week went back to doing the same old thing and the runners of that meeting went back and, and uh, um, celebrated 3,000 salvations. It was that they actually saw these people in community. It was just one of the main aspects, right? Saw them in community. For us, this would have been a staggering. It didn't happen because these guys were so good at their strategic evangelism. This big day um, happened simply because the people of the early church were surrendered to the Holy Spirit. It was obvious. He was at work in their midst. And the proof of that posture of surrender in these early disciples' lives, it was evident in their devotion to the Word of God, their commitment to the Word of God, their love for God, their commitment to prayer, their constant attitude of gladness, and their, their lifestyle of worship and generosity, and, and their praise and their commitment to uh, missional engagement in their community. This was, this was what defined these guys. It is, it is God who does the saving of the lost. Hear me right. In this passage, as we look at it, if you go back to that verse 47, who did the adding? The Lord added to their midst. It doesn't say pastor so-and-so added to their midst, or deacon so-and-so, or elder so-and-so, or leader so-and-so. It tells us that Peter preached a message back up here. But the one that did the adding was God himself because God is the one who adds. So anytime we look around us and we go, man, God, are you going to add people to our church family? I think that's who we have to ask. We have to say, God, please save people and add them to our church family. I've said this a number of times. Every time I step in the pulpit to preach God's word, I'm begging God to save people. And I'm believing that through that message, he will save people. Which then, in a reverse order, causes me to take this job seriously. It goes for all of us from greeting at the back door to setting coffee out to setting up church here to doing a block party, right? Like All the things that we do together as the family of God are serious things. Life or death eternal is on the line. Why? Because God is adding to the church daily. By God's grace, like we've seen uh, 30 plus, almost 40 baptisms in our church family in the last four or five years. This, this is God at work among us. Right? Thank God it wasn't 3,000. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> it's hard enough for us with 50, right? <laughs> so we can... We can see God's hand at work. We can see the Holy Spirit doing His thing among us. And we can live in that joy. It's God who does the saving of lost people. And when He saves lost people, He saves them to become maturing and growing members of the family of the local church where they can live their lives 
where you and I can live our lives as authentic expressions of worship towards God in front of an unbelieving world so that other lost people then would be called or invited to repentance and salvation and faith in Christ as recipients of God's mission through the power of the Holy Spirit actively at work among His people. That's like a Pauline run-on sentence, isn't it? <laughs> this is... This is why we believe um, that the people of the well will become a family of missionally engaged disciples who grow their disciples as we experience God's saving power together. So three, three takeaways, right, today. Um, three takeaways. Praise God publicly, live peacefully, and experience the salvation of God at work among us. How is this helpful to us? I pray that the Holy Spirit uses some of what I preached this morning already to be very helpful. I want to give us three points that I think uh, just naturally flow out of the other three points. It's a way of just continuing to drive the same points home. I'll confess that from the get-go. Um, the first three points that came out of the text seemed to make so much sense to me that I just thought, well, we'll just rework them and try to apply it to us. Right? Um, so number one. Number one. Number one helpful point for us. Praise God publicly. Wow, praise God. I'm being a smart aleck on purpose, so you guys know. <laughs> praise God publicly. Like, listen, listen. That when you think about barriers to praising God publicly, this is something we have to talk about and think about as people. Like, what is the barrier? Like, thanks, Joe, for preaching and telling us all about what the early church did. I want to be just like, like them, so let me just hang that heavy weight on my shoulder and walk out the door. I don't want that for us. I want us to think about some of the barriers that stop us from living that way, from praising God publicly. So think about it this way. Like, the things that we do publicly or externally, you could say, I think they're heavily influenced by what's happening internally or what's happening privately in our lives. If you and I live private lives or internal lives that are filled with conflict and selfishness and self-loathing and isolation or individualism, then the reality is that our public lives will be saturated with self-praise. On the other hand, if our private lives are filled to the brim, filled to overflowing, if you and I internally, if us corporately as a church family, if we are internally filled up to the brim with these things, awe towards God, love of God, focused attention on God, commitment to the family of God, a consistent devotion to the Word of God and a, a deep love for our neighbor. And how about this? A deep love for our enemies. Well, um, what if we just took that one just for a second? Who do you got in this room that's your enemy? Who do you have outside these doors that you have as your enemy? Well, what, if, what if you and I lived towards our enemies the same way that Christ lived towards us who were His enemies? That's, that's a hard, this is a hard calling, isn't it? That, that's a hard thing. You and I will not ever get that done without the power of the Holy Spirit. Because left to our natural selves, and because the world around us, what do we do with enemies? Drop kick them out the door, right? Talk trash, put things on Facebook. <laughs> but Jesus, the one whom we claim to love, he came and loved his enemies at the cross. So what if, what, if, what if we just began to do that? What if we just began to ask God, help us to have a deep love for our enemies? Because I think if we did that privately and internally, individually and corporately as a church body, if we did that, what would that look like to be defined this way? I think it would, I think it would look like our public lives being saturated with praise towards God rather than praise of self. Number two, Number two, live at peace with other people. Kind of dovetails into the first one. Once again, our, our internal health affects our external health. person with a heart that lives at peace with God 
will seek to live at peace with other people. Just This is theology at work. This is, this is practical theology here. When you and I go, oh, I, I'm now at peace with God, so I can live with peace with other people. Doesn't mean you become a doormat. It just means you live at peace. On the other hand, a person who lives in conflict, constant conflict with God, you're constantly in conflict with Him. He, he's not the good father that you once believed he was. He's a terrible father. You start thinking those things, right? He has not provided for me. He has actually left me here to die. Whatever, however it goes in our heads when we begin to conflict, um, when that conflict is happening deep down inside, what do you think our relationships on the outside look like? Conflict-filled relationships, right? Not, not peaceful relationships. See, a church that is full of people who are living in their newfound peace with God will live at peace with other people in as much as it depends upon them. This is Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12 is all about what it looks like to be a new believer in Christ Jesus. It's a short section of verses. I would encourage us all to lean in there. I would hope that that passage, Romans 12, would describe the community and the family of our church as well. It's very practical. In as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with other people. Which means that you and I have to own our crap, right? We have to own that. We have to say, you know what? I brought this unhealthiness to this relationship. Whatever they did is between them and God. I'm not staying there to get trampled on. I'm not calling that. But as much as it depends upon me, I'm going to live at peace with all people. Which means we stop sinning against one another. And when we sin against one another, we call for repentance. And we confess forgiveness. And we walk differently. People of the early church, man, they were caught up. They were caught up in their newfound peace with God, and therefore they were enabled to live at peace with others. They had experienced, listen, they had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel, setting them free from all of their years of conflict and war against God. And so they were now enabled by the same power of that same Holy Ghost to live at peace and in favor with all the other people. Make a list of all the other people you know. Who are you in conflict with? What do you need to do to make that right? Because if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, the desire you will have is to make that right, not get what you think you deserve. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in a group of people. Number three, and lastly, I would say this. Experience the power of salvation. I use those words intentionally. Experience the power of salvation. Some people say that when we read the book of Acts, we place too much attention on this word experience. Like, it's too experiential. Like, like you can't, like, raise your hands in church and, boy, don't sing too loud. Uh, don't dance around a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of, like, flag waving or anything like that. Um, but uh, somebody's going to get that eventually. <laughs> um, it's an experience to the message of salvation. It's not just a cold, literal message on a page. It's an experience to it. We should taste and see that God is good. That's an experience, right? Good food is a good experience in my book. A, a great painting is a, a good rainbow in the clouds like we saw last night. Taste and see that God is good. Experience the goodness of God in salvation. We have a bad habit, though, I think, just as a human race. We have a bad habit of boiling experiences down to one-time events. Man, I saw that absolutely gorgeous triple rainbow last night, and it was flipping sweet, right? It was awesome. Like, there is a God on the throne. We see that. We experience that thing. We say the movie we saw last week or last year was life-changing or the concert we went to a few weeks ago, that, that was amazing. Right? We take those experiences, we take those events or those event-driven uh, mentality of experiences and we, I think we project them upon God. So God has to make this experience great. 
if I'm going to think he's great. And then when the experience doesn't get so great anymore, because we lost the high, we're not on the mountaintop anymore, we're actually down in the valley, and life is tough again, um, not so life-changing anymore. This is the patterns we go through. And it's not like the experience of reading a book, hearing a sermon, looking at a great rainbow in the sky. It's not that that's bad, just that we forget the power of the gospel for salvation. The power of the gospel for salvation. It's meant to be experienced daily in the context of a spirit-filled community of the gospel. That's what it's meant for. It wasn't meant to be a Sunday morning thing or just a Wednesday night thing in gospel community. It was meant to be an everyday experience of God's grace and salvation in our lives. That psalm we sang earlier. Redeemed? If you notice the way that that psalm is put together, we've sang this psalm for what, about a year now? Roughly? Roughly? Well, maybe a little less than a year. Saying that for a year. Worship songs are important because they're repetitive for, for a purpose. They're meant to teach us and train us and reorient our minds around things that we should be saying about God and saying about ourselves. And that's why we've seen those. That song redeemed is meant to be a reminder that the one thing that God says over us now is redeemed. All the rest of the things that you and I say over ourselves that are unhealthy and untrue anymore biblically, those are, have gone to the wayside. So the question is like, when we sing that song, do you believe that song? It, do you pay attention to what you're singing? Because we should pay attention to what we're singing because just by singing that song, we are then experiencing salvation, the gospel. Maybe it'd be a good time for some of us to replace some of the other things we're listening to with that one song. That would be a very practical step. Put it on your phone. Anytime you start getting negative thoughts in your head, turn the song on and experience salvation again. Right? Practical tip. Number five or six, I don't know. <laughs> Drink milk, it does the body good. <laughs> you and I need to experience the saving grace of God on a daily basis, the power of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we believe all these things. That's why we've been saying all these things. It's to help us understand how we will continue to grow maturing, missionally engaged disciples of Jesus Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the power. We know that without Him we are doomed. We know that. So that's why we say that we believe that this will happen as God does His work in us, right? And so my prayer for us has been this, as I wrap us up. My prayer has been um, that we would become that gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. My prayer is that we wholeheartedly engaged in gospel community weekly, large group, small group and that as we do that that what would characterize those gatherings would be our praise, our glad and wholehearted praise, not our complaining our glad and wholehearted praise of God publicly in those gatherings, that's what our gatherings should look like as the Spirit does His work in us. So, so what steps do you need to take um, as we wrap this up, right? What steps do you need to take to be a part of that kind of a church family? What barriers do you need to ask the Spirit of God to break through? Is it an issue of private and public praise for you? Is it an issue of living at peace with God and others for you? Or is it an issue of experiencing the power of salvation daily for you? See, my prayer for us is that we would hear this as a call or an invitation to join God in this mission of planting the well so that we would become the people of the well. Gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. Three words. Gospel, family, mission. That's our hope for the people of the well. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the power of your word.
and for this group of gathered people here in this church family. Thank you for the privilege of preaching and shepherding. Lord, I pray as we head into a time of communion and worship that you would just be powerfully present, that you would be present to convict of sin, present to transform and heal, present to call us to your presence. Help us to remember the cross of Christ where your body was broken and your blood was shed. Help us to ask for and to rest in the power of the presence of your Spirit. We ask you, Spirit of the living God, to come and breathe life into dead hearts. Breathe, breathe life into dead bones. Bring the dead to life this morning and help us to worship you, to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we... Uh, close. We'll close in worship. We'll also close in communion. There'll be two of us near the front to serve communion to you. Uh, you can come from either side. And uh, this meal, as, as we do this, this meal is for believers. If you're here and you're a believer, we definitely invite you to join in this meal as we celebrate Christ and His work at the cross. If you're here and you're not a believer, you just never accepted Christ, never trusted Him, still skeptical, not sure, we'd say this meal is not for you yet because this meal is for people who have trusted in Christ. We don't want to develop or create like religious things that you must do to look right or something like that. Uh, and so, so if that's you, glad you're here. Happy you're here. Love to have you here. Um, and this moment for you could be that moment where you're like, man, I do trust in Christ. I realize my wickedness, my sin, my failure, um, my, 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 my sinfulness, right? I, just, I recognize that. I know that I can't save myself and change myself. Only Jesus can do that. I need him. I'm trusting his work at the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And as he went to the tomb and then the tomb was empty three days later, signifying the power that's now given to me so I can live a new life. That's you. You believe that? Then uh, this meal's for you. Love to pray with you um, as you come. And uh, so thanks for being here. Let, let's stand, let's worship, and let's take communion together. Thanks, guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.